0: Welcome to Behind the Read, season two. In the second season of podcast episodes, I'll be having conversations with poets. Each of my guests will read aloud one of their poems and then share with me some insights about them. They're powerful conversations and I'm so excited for you, our Lakeshore readers and beyond, to listen in on them. My hope is that these episodes about poetry, which really end up being conversations about life and how to live in our world, conversations that are as informative and inspiring to you as they were to me. So come, join me in season two of Behind the Read to deepen your understanding of poetry and your appreciation of it and to be inspired by the ways that poetry and words and language can help us live more attentively in our world and more authentically in connection with each other. In this episode of Behind the Read, I'm having a conversation with my Hope College colleague and friend, Pablo Pascara. Pablo is an associate professor in the Department of English at Hope College and currently serves as the interim chair and as the area coordinator for creative writing. He's published over 100 poems, interviews, reviews, essays, and translations from Spanish. And he has the pleasure of teaching poetry to Hope College students. Among Pablo's accomplishments, are a Pushcart Prize nomination, three scholarships to the Bread Loaf Writers Conference, a scholarship to the International Pen Conference in Lake Bled, Slovenia, an international scholarship to university in Poland, and a residency in translation at the National Endowment for the Humanities Institute. For three years, he served as the editor of Gulf Coast, a journal of literature and fine arts, where he completed his PhD in literature and creative writing at the University of Houston. Pablo moved from Peru to the United States in 1975 with his parents. Welcome to the podcast, Pablo. So great to have you.
1: Thank you for having me, Deb. Uh,
0: I I want to start at the beginning. Uh, Pablo, can you share with our listeners and me uh, some of your poetry story? When did it start? Maybe reading poetry, and then maybe if you want to transition to to also talk about, when did you start writing poetry?
1: Well, I've always been an avid reader from as early as I can remember. and I think you're going to find that's true with most with most people who like to write. But um, I remember when uh, my father was talking to me about um, uh, William Blake's um, uh, "The Tiger," um, "Tiger, Tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry?" And and I remember thinking you know, I was probably like 12 and, and I was thinking, boy, that's weird. Why, why is my dad talking to me about this poem? And then, um, but he happened to have a copy of songs of innocence and experience, which is unusual because my father, um, you know, he's from Peru and he, uh, is fluent in English, was fluent in English, but he always used to say that poetry in English didn't really work for him, Mm -hmm. but he liked William Blake. Um, and so I began to read that poem and other poems and songs of innocence and experience. And I was really captured by the, um, by the music of his language, um, by the way the rhyme felt mature. And um, the content was um, uh, somehow about fear and about awe, mm-hmm. awe of God's creation as well as um, a, a kind of nascent awareness of mortality in the poem The Tiger that, that I find really powerful. Um, and then as I grew older and I learned more about William Blake and his interesting, um, his fascinating kind of cosmological Christian worldview, um, Uh, things began to take off. I began to look more at poetry Mm. um, and kind of saw what I liked as I went along. And I started writing poems when I was a teenager.
0: Mm.
1: And that's kind of how I came to it.
0: Yeah, thanks, Paolo. I love your comment about the musicality, how Mm. poems sound. And I I think it's interesting too, as we think about poetry in different languages and how, you know, your dad said poetry in English doesn't necessarily work so much for him. Uh, that's a whole fascinating conversation we can have. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, um, so I think that for many people, um, the language that feels most comfortable to them, the musical language, as well as the syntactical sense, the sense-making parts of language, um, uh, feel more comfortable in the language they grew up in. Mm -hmm. So, for my father, that was Spanish. Um, there's uh, our theories about um, there are theories about uh, language acquisition that talk about how we learn language in chunks, right? In chunks of phrases, and those chunks are not um, are not uh, if we describe them, they're not what we would say grammatical in terms of correctness but we still understand them right as small children you know 1 years old 2 2 years old as they learn the language right they develop an ability to communicate that has nothing to do with grammar specifically right it has to do with word order and syntactical decisions and they gradually gain skill and i think it's that part of language that we feel that allows us to feel most comfortable in our say home language right or, or our childhood language and so for him, English, um, unless there was some kind of highly musical aspect to it, he couldn't really connect with it, mm-hmm. right? So, so a lot of twentieth-century um, poetry in English he couldn't really connect with, but things from say like Blake, who's from um, you know the um, uh, the early eighteenth century, he had he or mid-eighteenth century, he had he felt he could connect with because of its musicality.
0: Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm getting a glimpse of what it's like to sit in one of your classes at Hope College, just hearing you unpack some of that. And I want to transition a little bit. Earlier, you also said that you loved in that poem um, uh, all the emotions that poems can hold, right? Awe Mm -hmm. and fear. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, I'm sure these are the things, sorts of things you talk about with your Hope College students. Can you share a little bit about how you teach poetry how you help Hope College students to think about poetry, to write poetry themselves, what are some of the things that you try to do with your students?
1: Well, that depends on the, on the class, right? Fair enough. Um, so in, in some classes, like say an interim class and an intermediate class, like a 300 level class right now, um, we tend to focus on the idea of form form can be an amorphous concept, but it has to do with how to use lines and how to use stanzas and what the effects can be on the reader. And like all good writing instruction, as, as, as you know, Deb, you're trying to bring the writer's awareness to a, you're trying to help the writer become more aware of what is going on in the language they're using. Hmm. Right. So my main goal in my 300 level class is to help them become more aware of what the language, they're, of the effects of the language they're using and of the effects of uh, line endings and stanza breaks, um, the lengths of lines, the numbers of syllables or how you might call beats per line right? So the stressed syllables per line, what are the effects? And in language, we tend to take these effects for granted Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so much so that we often don't think of ourselves as applying or as applying them, right? So when they happen in our own speech or our own own writing, they feel accidental Mm -hmm. or they're happening; these sonic effects or phonic effects are happening because of a pattern we've already learned that we're employing out of habit. Mm. But these patterns of stress and sound are um, can be manipulated like anything. Right? Language is a medium, like clay or paint, Ooh. and you can shape it. And you can edit it, adjust it, reform it, reconstitute it. Um, and in fact, it's much easier once you learn the, um, the patterns that are there, the way sound has, has different kinds of effects that you hadn't thought about before. And I see these kinds of sound effects happening in song, especially in rap music, mm. um, because rap artists are very much focused on the words they're using as composed to say average pop music, but you see it in all, in, in all language. And so the goal of, of the 300 level class is really to raise um, uh, sound pattern, sound structure in the mind of my students to a self-aware level. Mm -hmm. And in 400 level courses, my goal is to help them, become more aware of the kinds of modes that people use when they're writing a poem. So what is a poem for, right? And if you look at the history of poetry, there are several clear modes that people use poetry for. One of them is to express awe. Probably the most, one of the most powerful is to express awe, like in Tiger, The Tiger by Blake. And when we express awe, we are expressing um, an awareness of the power of the divine, the power of our world, our uh, desire to comprehend it and make sense of it. And that happens at particular times for particular reasons, right? A love poem is a poem that expresses awe in in the emotion of human connection, right? Um, and uh, that can happen at different times of the day. And we actually have modes that we've inherited, right, that work that way. One is the the Abad, the morning love poem. Mm -hmm. Another one is the Nocturne, which is sometimes a love poem or often is just about the emotional experience of nighttime. Um, So mostly poems express some kind of awe or express some desire to understand. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'd like my students to connect with, that they can express awe, they can express um, all all different kinds of emotions. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Often poems will allow students to access things they hadn't really um, processed too deeply emotional things haven't processed too deeply just yet. Um, when, when we talk about poems, we often talk about the journey of reading a poem and the journey of writing a poem. And, and the journey of reading a poem is that the poem unfolds and you're not sure where the poem may lead you over the course of reading it. And it's true as well for the writing of the poem when a poet writes a poem, they often don't know where it's going to take them, Mm. right? You you know, we talk about getting into flow or getting into the zone whenever we do anything with real um, uh, intensity and attention and focus. And the poet wants the reader of their poems to get into that sense of flow, right? And... um, Lose, a sense, lose their sense of time and place as they're reading the poem, because that's deep engagement. So, so when I write a poem, that's what I'd like my readers to do. And, and that's what I'm trying to encourage my students to do, right? Um, yeah, that's why I like doing it, because of the opportunity for connection. Mm-hmm. Someone who's reading my work or helping my students become more connected with the people around them or more connected um, with the writers that they're reading.
0: Paul, there's so much I wanna unpack here. Uh, first thought, I love your asset-based approach to working with your students. Um, this idea that we naturally play with language, and this is such a powerful metaphor about language being a medium, almost like clay. I'm just in my mind thinking about it that way. But I mean, your comments about building off things that we naturally do that maybe we're not even aware of or don't. Um, we see it as accidental and so I I love sort of framing it that way and um, then also love the stance of um, the journey right in reading a poem and I think one of our hopes for this podcast is that we help our lakeshore readers um, feel better equipped to approaching a poem and I think sometimes there's this idea that you have to have a poem all figured out like it's presented to you and you there's the in answer or a meaning of a poem and framing it as a journey I think is Uh, in reading a poem. And then also in writing a poem, that itself is a journey. You're processing something, you're, you know, you're going, being able to go deeper sometimes, and you'll end up in a spot you didn't even realize that Mm -hmm. you would end in. And I'm wondering, can can you share just some quick examples of students that you've worked with or situations with students that can illustrate some of these journeys or um, some of this approach?
1: Yeah, it happens every class, you know, so, so the way that most creative writing classes work is that you'll have um, you'll talk about, uh, say, some assigned material, uh, some poems um, that may have a certain um, a range of form or subject um, or subject matter that they agree on. Um, so, for example, right now um, in one of my classes, we're looking at free verse, right, which is basically unrhymed um, poems. That uh, have um, some kind of of uh, musical effect, but not too strict, right? So there's no rhyming. There's nothing specific going on that you would typically hang your hat on that makes it traditionally considered a poem. And um, and as as they go through this poem, as they go through the poems, they will basically um, they will often say, "Wow, I didn't I didn't know that I would end." the poem in this way, right? I didn't know that would happen, right? I, I, I had this idea for a subject. I started to write about the subject, trying to describe it, you know, etch it in a very particular way. And then I ended up at this place. It, it, it happens every class,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Um, and I think that's because the, the experience of creating art, when you're really in that experience, that is naturally going to happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. Well, I'd love to apply this uh, and unpack some of this perspective and approach um, to one of your poems. And papa might you be willing to read one of your poems for us? Uh, and I'll, I'll make sure to post a link to it in our um, podcast episode notes. And then after reading it, um, I'd love to just have you unpack it a little bit for us, maybe some of the things that you were trying to do or some of the journey that this poem brought you on in the act of writing it.
1: Sure, Um, so I wrote a few poems um, after, or imitating uh, the Palestinian poet, Mahmoud Darwish, um, who's one of my favorite poets. He wrote in Arabic, but was very, uh, a large amount of his poems have been translated Um, And so I was reading his poem several years ago, and I started to come up with ways to react to his poetic uh, landscape, um, using my own landscape, my own imaginative and personal landscape where I live and the kinds of places I spend time in. And there's this uh, poem called The Pond that I'm fond of. So I'll, I'll read that for you. The Pond, after Mahmoud Darwish. I walk in a field of black waters and I mean within the bowl of God's right hand from one rock to the next without a dollar to guide me. The heron over there is sharing the secrets of the hunt descending in a silent glide to the shallows and settling like a breeze because the air moves for the heron's purpose with the deliberation of a devoted servant. I move wet with a line extended in waiting, thinking to myself, how do dancers trace the shape of the world so that we can see it all at once? Is it from the movement of the body that love flares up? I wade as if sleeping. In the water, I see no one above me. I still the ripples, I see no one below me. If I walk, I will become heavy like the soaked elm, heavy like a vial of blood emptied into the water. The parasites will transfigure me. I will become the bubbles that lift the sunken elm to float like a whispered curse just below the surface. All the tension in the world will hold me below in the darkness. You will never know I am there, waiting, when the heron lands on my slick back and opens his beak to say, this is a sign of what you may never know.
0: Thank you for that, Pavel, it's powerful.
1: So I was trying to um, think about the landscape of a small pond and all the ponds I visited, right? Here in West Michigan, we have lots of, you know, fresh water all over the place, right? And I was thinking about the kind of emotional experience you get watching a large bird like the heron land in their natural landscape, and then what it's like to be part of that landscape, what it's like to be part of that environment. And my imagination began to take me into this um, space where I as a speaker, I as a person, began to um, really become part of the landscape, right? In Integrate with the landscape in a much more direct way and so I, I, I get into this sort of um, magical space. I, I have this tendency to begin to imagine myself, right? As, as an inanimate object in my poems, right? So what's it like to be the tree? Or what's it like to be the pond or part of the pond, right? Or what's it like to be um, um, uh, integrated into the essence of the forest? It's really, it's, it, it's this habit of mind and it's a kind, it's a way for me to sort of explore that, that um, uh, transmutation into another, into another space. Um, uh, not a real consciousness, because we don't think of nature as having a consciousness, but get into what it's like to be part of that landscape and what it's like to be integrated into that landscape. And once I get there, I began to think, so what does that reveal to me? Right, and in the end, I, I'm kind of feeling I don't know, but it's revealing something to me. Mm-hmm. So something about connection and something about the power of that landscape.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you comment a little bit about um, the poet Darwish that you were sort of uh, inspired by?
1: Yeah, Mah- Mahmoud Darwish is a very interesting poet. Um, he's he's considered um, uh, the among the greatest contemporary Arabic language poets, if not the greatest, um, I've heard stories about how, um, for example, a friend of mine who's Egyptian uh, once went to a reading of um, by an Egyptian poet, <clears throat> and Mahmoud Darwish, who lived in Egypt at the time, um, because he had been um, uh, he was in exile uh, from Palestine. Um, was the uh, opener for the Egyptian poet, right? And, uh, you know, the hall was completely packed with hundreds of people, right? So Mahmoud Darwish, he read for half an hour or so. As soon as he was done, everybody left. right? Like, like the Egyptian poet the reading was for, right, had, say, maybe half the people, right, remaining. Everyone had gone there to hear Mahmoud Darwish. He's that important in Arabic poetry. He, he died a few years ago. Um, and he wrote a lot about um, the Palestinian imagination, a lot about exile, but he wrote a lot of nature poems that were based in the Palestinian landscape. And so I was trying to think, and he often would connect himself uh, with the Palestinian landscape and a desire to be linked with his homeland. Um, that he was exiled from. So he's a very powerful poet for me um, in, in the sense that um, you know, my, my family's from Peru. And so I feel as though there are elements of um, uh, exile. Um, in my case, it's more immigration, um, but elements of not being in your home or feeling like you're not home to one degree or another, which is in some ways can be a human, a mm-hmm. common human experience. In other ways can be really particular to, to the process of immigration. Mm-hmm. So Mahmoud Darwish is, it, is without a doubt the most important 20th century, or late 20th century Air, Arabic poet. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I really connected with his work.
0: I'll be sure to include some links in our episode notes to his poetry. Uh, I would love for our readers to explore him even further. Um, Pablo, as you think about the poem, the pond that you wrote, what, what's a hope that you have for your readers of this poem or listeners as they've just heard you listen to, uh, they've just heard you read it out loud?
1: My hope is that they get a sense of the um, of the uh, rhythms of the sentences. Um, they, they feel um, a kind of comfort in the description. I I try to go for a calm descriptive voice, shorter sentences, generally shorter sentences. Um, and then this, uh, this desire or feeling of transformation, right? From from one state into another. Um, that as we, when I read poems, what I most enjoy is feeling that I am entering another person's way of understanding the world. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that I have a, a thesis or that I know exactly what I'm processing or understanding. But when I read a poem, I want to know that I'm understanding a a unique person's different way of going through the world. Um, and that's different than, I think, the way a lot of people think of poetry. I think that in, in our culture, poetry is, about rec- poetry is often used as a way to recognize yourself, right? Which can be very comforting, right? Can be very comforting. And that's one of the things that drew me to Mahmoud Darwish Right was that in some ways I was recognizing elements of my own experience um, as an immigrant, uh, but in other ways the way Mahmoud Darwish handled that that um, that experience very different than the way I would have. Mm-hmm. Right, he really tried to enter his home landscape. He thought about it passionately. Um, thought about its people passionately um, and his love for his home. And, um, and so as I, his home is not, is not my home. Right. So I, when I read Mahmoud Darwish's work, I get the sense that I'm in his emotional space in his emotional set or landscape. And I'm getting the, the power of his longing for homeland. Mm. So, so my hope for this poem is that um, readers will get a sense of the longing for connection with the natural, with the natural world, but also the, the kind of fear of that connection. Yeah. Right, it, it's a frightening thing to be taken out of your own element, um, and I think we all. F- we all feel that at some point in our lives. Um, I don't mean to make my my readers feel afraid, right? I just want them to feel that I have a nervousness about mm-hmm. that that movement as well, right? That when you enter a different space, when you enter a different cultural space or physical space, you end up with um, um, uh, a recognition of something different, of an other, of Something that's not that's not quite you, yeah. And being open to that is necessary to human experience. Mm-hmm.
0: So that's and, what
1: I really get.
0: Yeah. No. And um, I just think it's so helpful the way you articulated that, particularly as we think about our big read book for this year, poetry as a way of uh, understanding or getting a glimpse into how someone else understands the world. And right. I mean that's what our hope is for our readers as we read Joy Harjo's book. Uh, yeah. of poems in American sunrise, but um, love the way that you articulated that, a person's understanding of the world and as readers, we get to sort of view that and learn from it and mm-hmm. have that enhance our own. Right. Yeah, um, we, we talked a little bit earlier about um, effects of language and playing with language. And I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about one or two instances in the poem of mm-hmm. ways that you played with language or try to shape or form it intentionally?
1: You you know, in this poem, I really tried to begin with longer sentences or slightly longer sentences, Um, maybe um, uh, um, 10 to 15 to 20 words roughly. And then I moved to shorter sentences as the poem progresses. And, And shorter sentences tend to help with intensity um, so as the sentences become shorter, the, my hope is that the, the reader will get these more specific statements. Um, you know, the sentence in English, it really revolves around the verb. So the more verbs you have, then the more things happening, right? Because um, verbs are action. So in the, in, in the middle and later in the poem, I use these short sentences. I wade as if sleeping. In the water, I see no one above me. I still, I still the ripples. I see no one below me. If I walk, I will become heavy like the soaked elm. So those shorter sentences then lead to the possibility of action happening more quickly. But because the sentences are shorter and they are organized over these two-line stanzas, right? There's lots of opportunities for the reader to kind of pause Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and contemplate what it is that I have written and how it's affecting them. I'm also really interested in line endings, how a line ending creates a kind of um, um, uh, meaning that is very different from the meaning of of, uh, punctuation, right? So uh, in in these similar lines, if I walk, I will become heavy like the soaked elm. I'm interested in the line break at become. So there's this sort of um, uh, pregnant pause at become but there's no punctuation. The next line reads, heavy like a vial of blood emptied into the water. Mm -hmm. So there's this vial, we don't know and it, it, to be honest, I didn't know when I was writing this, I didn't know what, what would be in the vial, right? Mm-hmm. Heavy like a vial of blood emptied into the water. And then I got this image, you know, how blood is heavier than water, right? Because mm-hmm. it contains more than water and it kind of sinks and disperses into, into water. And so I, I was trying to get a sense of that sort of weighted weightedness that also disperses and is also mixes with water. Um, And that was the idea I was going for when I, as a speaker, sink into the water, right? I mix with the water and become part of the water. So so those line endings mean a lot to me when I write them, right? Um, And so the line endings and the two line stanzas, I'm hoping, allow the reader to pause and consider Mm. What what is coming next in the next line, how the pause, although it's not necessary for grammatical reasons, um, creates a kind of space in the mind of the reader. Mm. Um, That's what I think that poetry allows us to do. Poetry in lines allows us to do. It allows us to think Mm. um, more slowly so that as we think more slowly, we can allow um, the content of the poem to to um, enter our subconsciousness. Mm -hmm. And that subconscious effect, those subconscious effects end up um, uh, creating uh, a a kind of emotional resonance within us that we couldn't have without the line breaks and the stanzas and that kind of thing.
0: When when you're describing thinking more slowly, it's it's just reminding me that in some ways poetry, you can argue it's like a way of life, right? And our world would be different if we all sort of approached thinking about others' experiences or our experiences in the natural world or with others and have these moments where we can think more slowly. Um, That would change us.
1: That's right. That's right. And, you know, thinking slowly allows us to to feel more confident about our mental and emotional lives, Mm. right? Right right now especially we're in a world that forces us to think as quickly as possible yes and and poetry helps us slow down there's there is tremendous psychological and emotional health in the practice of reading poetry as well as writing poetry right that that action is almost meditative Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and it, it um it it gives us the ability not only to meditate on a a subject matter, but also connect with another human being at the same time. Mm. That that's really what drew me to poetry at, at at the beginning. I felt like I was beginning to connect with what William Blake was trying to do mm. poetry, and that fascinated me.
0: Yeah, and, and one of our my hopes as director of our Big Read program this year is that people become inspired to take on poetry as a way of life, as a way of responding to the world and being in the world. Um, Pablo, our our time is almost coming to a close, but I I wanted to um, ask you a question about making poems accessible to others. And that's something that I hear a lot from community members, like, oh, these poems just aren't accessible to me, not like Shel Silverstein poems once were or, you know, poet, what, why can't it just all rhyme or things like that? I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about poetry as, what does it mean to make poetry accessible? Should that be a goal? Um, how would you respond to comments like the ones I just described?
1: Well, I think that poetry is like, um, anything that if you do it more often, if you read it more often, you become better at it. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, I think that um, the progression of poetry from Shel Silverstein, say to Mahmoud Darwish, there's a huge, uh, very long journey, right, between those poems. I also love Shel Silverstein, right? But, but when I read Shel Silverstein, I'm accessing um, a different kind of awareness, right? One, one that suited me when I first started reading Shel Silverstein. And then over the course of my life, I began to read many different kinds of poets. And sometimes those poets were much more um, um, uh, accessible, and sometimes they were less accessible. Mm -hmm. And what I've done is I've um, uh, actually worked at reading poems. Right? It's a practice, Mm -hmm. and you get better at it. And I think that's something that's, that's tricky. There, there are poets, there are plenty of poets, to be honest, that are more accessible than me. Right. And, and, and I don't write poetry in order to be inaccessible. I I don't know. Poets write poetry just to be inaccessible. Um, uh, And and there are poems I've written that are somewhat more accessible than this one, which I think is pretty accessible. Right. Um, I think that at, accessibility has to do with, with practice in the same way that we wouldn't expect, say, someone um, who is not used to listening to jazz music to automatically enjoy jazz music the first time they hear it, mm-hmm. right? Or someone who is not used to looking at, say, um, uh, uh, an American football game
0: mm-hmm.
1: enjoy watching the, enjoy watching the game or experiencing the intricacies of the game the first time they watch it right? Everything takes practice. And um, that's what it ultimately comes down to is not being afraid and just giving it a try. And if you're not connecting, that's okay. You go, you go and find something else that you you do connect with. Mm
0: -hmm. It's not about
1: right or wrong. It's about pleasure. Yeah. Thanks.
0: Yeah. So our our hope is that for some of our readers, this is a place to start with poetry. And then, like you said, Pablo, um, keep going with it, practice it, Um, surround yourself with different kinds of poets and poems and poetry and um, build up, um, keep, keep working on it. Uh, the last question that I am asking in these season two podcast episodes is a fill in the blank problem.
1: Uh-huh.
0: So poetry is blank. How would you respond to that?
1: Poetry is connection.
0: Mm. Can you explain how uh, you we've you've already talked a lot about that, but can you unpack that a little bit more?
1: Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm treating this like a Mad Libs, right? <laughs> so one word only. Poetry is uh, human connection. It's the ability to know someone really well.
0: Thanks for that, Pablo. Yeah. um thank you so much for this conversation i'm thrilled to have you as a colleague i'm thrilled to collaborate on projects with you and i'm um, just delighted in this conversation we've had and i'm sure our listeners feel the same so thanks so much for the gift of your time pablo thanks so much for listening to behind the read if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast please subscribe leave a rating and review and recommend it to your family and friends. For more information and to join our mailing list, please visit our website, bigreadlakeshore.com. This podcast was brought to you by Hope College's Big Reed Lakeshore team. The amazingly talented Kylie Galloway produced this episode.